Jesus uses two separate incidents. One that occurs naturally and the other that he seems to personally arrange to enable us to see his own heart, a heart of true righteousness toward God. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom will continue his current series with part two of The Sabbath and the Heart of God. Have you ever contemplated the full impact of God's great commandment to remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy? How does one keep a day holy? How did Jesus himself view the Sabbath? Well, as we've been learning together through Mark chapters 2 and 3, Jesus endured accusations and resistance from the religious leaders of his day in how to fulfill this commandment. Some of the Lord's actions led some of these leaders to plot his capture and death. What exactly happened and why? Well, as you'll discover today, these actions rippled throughout history, impacting even how you should live today. Let's join Tom Pennington right now on The Word Unleashed. What Jesus did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest, and he also gave it to those who were with him. He uses the example of David in 1 Samuel chapter 21. In fact, turn back there for just a moment. So you see the context of Jesus' example. 1 Samuel 21, David is fleeing from Saul, and he comes to Nob, which is a little town not too far from Jerusalem, and to Ahimelech the priest. Now don't be bothered by the fact that it says he came to Ahimelech, and Jesus says Abiathar, the time of Abiathar. Some critics try to attack the Bible's veracity because Abiathar wasn't the high priest when this happened, Ahimelech was, but listen carefully, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but let me just tell you that there's always a reasonable explanation there is in this case as well. Abiathar was almost certainly present when this happened. He soon became high priest in place of Ahimelech, and he became the dominant high priest of that time, the one who was most known, and so it was in the time of Abiathar. But it goes on to say, he came trembling to meet David and said to him, why are you alone and no one with you? David said to Ahimelech the priest, the king has commissioned me with a manner and has said to me, let no one know anything about the manner in which I am sending you and for which I have commissioned you and I have directed the young men to a certain place. Now David here is being deceitful. The Bible doesn't comment on this deceit, but there is a lot of discussion about whether deceit in the time of war is acceptable or not. That's not a discussion I'm getting into tonight. Verse 3. Now, therefore, what do you have on hand? Give me the five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. The priest answered David and said, There is no ordinary bread on hand, but there is the consecrated bread. If only the young men have kept themselves from women. David answered the priest and said to him, Surely women have been kept from us as previously when I set out, and the vessels of the young men were holy, though it was an ordinary journey. How much more than today will their vessels be holy? In other words, okay, yeah, that, we meet that qualification. So the priest gave him consecrated bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which was removed from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place when it was taken away. Now what's going on here? 
in the tabernacle. We're not yet to the temple. Solomon builds the temple. In the tabernacle, just inside the holy place, not the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant was, but the holy place, there was a small table. It was three feet long. It was about 18 inches wide, and it stood about two feet, three inches high, according to Exodus 25. This table was overlaid with gold. And on that table was always 12 loaves or cakes of unleavened bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel. The bread pictured the constant fellowship of the people of Israel with God. Hendrickson writes, the Israelites were guests at God's table. He was their sustainer. In Hebrew, this bread is called the bread of the face or the bread of God's presence. It was before his face. Every Sabbath day, the priests would put fresh bread on that table, 12 more loaves, and they were to take the 12 loaves that had been there all week and to eat them. And only the priests could eat them, according to Leviticus 24. But in this case, it was all that Ahimelech had to offer David and his men as they fled from Saul. And so, it was the Sabbath day, they just removed those 12 loaves from the from the table there in the holy place. And Ahimelech gives David the bread. David and his friends take the bread and eat it to sustain themselves. Here's Jesus' argument. It's the argument from necessity. Genuine necessity trumps strict adherence to the ceremonial law. That's what Jesus is saying. Look at David. When there was a genuine need, even though the ceremonial law, by the way, the key word here is ceremonial, Necessity never trumps the moral law of God. It's never right to take God's name in vain. It's never right to have another God. It's never right to commit adultery. It's never right to steal. But when it comes to the ceremonial law, genuine necessity trumps strict adherence to the ceremonial law. Let's move on to Jesus' second argument. It's from the Mosaic law. And it doesn't come in Mark's gospel. It comes in the parallel account in Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 12, verse 5 says, Jesus added this, Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? There were a lot of things the priest had to do on Shabbat. They had to make additional sacrifices. There were, there were cleaning things that had to be done. The, the tabernacle and later the temple were essentially a, a glorified butcher shop where animal after animal was slain. There was much that had to be done. And the priests were allowed to work on Shabbat. The argument is this. It's okay to work on the Sabbath in the case of God-ordained ministry. The temple and its worship were greater than the Sabbath. And Jesus and his ministry, this is the argument, were greater than both the temple and the Sabbath. So it's okay for him on his mission and his ministry with his disciples not to respect that requirement. His third argument comes from the prophets. And it also is in Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 12, verse 7 says, But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the innocent. This is a quotation from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. And Jesus is essentially saying this to them. Listen, God's compassion for people is greater than the ceremonial law. You see this even in the ceremonial law, don't you? You remember the requirements were... Uh, large animals for sacrifice, but if you were too poor to avoid, to, to afford those large animals, you could bring 
birds, fowl. You see God's compassion for people, for their need. God's compassion for people is greater than the ceremonial law. There's a fourth argument Jesus uses, and that's from the very purpose of the Sabbath itself. This is in Mark chapter 2, verse 27. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The argument is, listen, God created the Sabbath as a blessing and a benefit to man. God didn't make man so that there would be somebody to keep the Sabbath. The Pharisees had made the Sabbath this sort of heavy, oppressive load. They had forgotten that God had instituted the Sabbath to be an expression of his compassionate provision for his creatures. D. Edmund Hebert writes this in his commentary. He says, the institution of the Sabbath requiring a periodic day of rest has been, had been an inestimable boon to mankind. It was a gift that afforded man not only physical rest, but also refreshment in spirit in raising his thoughts above his daily labors. But the minute, arbitrary regulations of the Pharisees made man a slave of the Sabbath, making its observance a burden rather than a blessing. Jesus says that wasn't the purpose of the Sabbath. It was to be a blessing to people where they didn't have to work, where they could enjoy my creation and God's people and the worship of me and their families. Jesus' final argument comes from his own personal authority. Look at verse 28. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This statement, especially in the Greek text, is shocking. Let me give it to you in the word order from the Greek text. Listen to what Jesus says. So Lord, Master, Kurios is the Son of Man even of the Sabbath. What an incredible claim on the part of our Lord. Basically, you know what Christ was saying? I created the Sabbath. I have the right to define it and to determine how it should be kept. Kurios, I am, even of the Sabbath. Credible responses of our Lord. Now, what I want to do in the few minutes we have remaining is I want to talk about the application of these things to us. Jesus has taught us a lot here. Let's see if we can synthesize out of it what we need to know First of all, a very clear application that draws out of this text is Jesus' use of the Scripture here underscores the importance of Scripture in deciding these kinds of issues and the necessity of reason and logic in comparing Scripture with Scripture in applying the Scripture. Jesus says, have you never read? He didn't mean they'd never read that text. To be a leader in Israel they may have even memorized that text. His point was he was accusing them of failing to properly understand and apply the Scripture. And it reminds us of how important it is to be careful with our treatment of the text of Scripture. A second application is this. Jesus' quotation of Hosea 6.6 underscores the priority of compassion in our lives. It's not a, a, an excuse for direct disobedience. You know, some people will say, well, God loves me, and so he'll be happy if, if uh, it'll make me happy to have another spouse, even though I have no biblical grounds for divorce. That's not what we're talking about. And if you, want, if you doubt that, then go back and read the story of Numbers 15, where the guy's gathering wood on the Sabbath in direct disobedience to God's command, and he's stoned to death. Nevertheless, if your attitude of heart 
is to truly obey God, then where there is genuine human need, God understands and shows compassion. Number three, and this is kind of the heart of where we're going, Christians are not bound by the regulations of either the Old Testament Sabbath or, quote-unquote, the Christian Sabbath. Jesus said he was Lord of the Sabbath, and he determines how it will be kept. So how then does Jesus command us through his apostles? What does he tell us to do? What about a Christian Sabbath? Well, there are two basic interpretations of this. One is that the Sabbath hasn't changed at all. In that case, it has to be what? Saturday, the seventh day, the day God rested from his creation. The other, and there, there really is nobody but Seventh-day Adventists that would call themselves Christians that do that, I don't believe. They're a very small segment. There may be a couple of other groups that have Jewish background. Most of the rest of Christians would say that Sabbath has changed, and they would say it's changed in one of two ways. Either they would say it's changed in the day only, and they would embrace a Christian Sabbath, In other words, it's exactly the same as the Old Testament, just the day has changed from Saturday to Sunday. Or they would say, no, the principle of the Sabbath, the fact that time is to be set apart from work to worship God is still true, but the specific restrictions of the Sabbath no longer apply. If you can guess, this is where I am. Let's kind of walk through this and see if we can make a biblical defense for the Lord's day. It's clear that Christians are to set aside time on the first day of the week to worship. There's no question about that. You can see it several different ways. You can see that the early importance of Sunday, it was, of course, that on that day that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. It was on that day, both the day of his resurrection and the following Sunday, when Jesus appeared six times to his disciples. Pentecost... And the outpouring of the Spirit in that year, because Passover, of when Passover was on Friday, 50 days later, would have put Pentecost on Sunday that year. So the amazing events of Pentecost happened on the first day of the week. You see it in the pattern of the early church. In Acts chapter 20, it says, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, I love this. And he prolonged his message until midnight. No, actually, you can tell that it's clear this was an exception to the rule. However, a number of church historians make the note that it seems already at this point there was a regular weekly gathering of Christians on the first day of the week, typically in the evening, because in a Jewish culture, that was what? A work day. And for those who were Uh, who were influenced by the Jewish culture, who were God-fearing Gentiles. And so, therefore, you could only gather in the evening. And it's secondly clear that the teaching of the Word of God was already a part of that early Christian worship, as was the breaking of bread. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul tells the Corinthians, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. So this is widespread in Macedonia, in Galatia, on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. Everything in that short section I just read, 
points to the reality that they met on the first day of the week, they made collections on the first day of the week, and this was a widespread practice, and when Paul came, he intended to gather with them on the first day of the week, but he didn't want collections to be made on the day he was there. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, John writes, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. A lot of ink has been spilled arguing on that point, but most historians agree that that is a reference to Sunday, that Sunday became, by the end of the first century, called the Lord's Day. Is there a Christian Sabbath? Are we to treat Sunday in exactly the same way that Old Testament Jewish believers treated Saturday, the Sabbath? Well, let me give you a couple of arguments to consider. First of all, the Sabbath command, the fourth commandment, is the only one of the Ten Commandments that is not repeated and affirmed in the New Testament. Now, I think that's an argument to consider. I don't think an argument on silence is the strongest argument, so I'm not going to stop there, but I think you ought to weigh that. I think the strongest argument comes in Colossians chapter 2. Turn there with me. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 Paul writes, therefore, as a result of what Christ has accomplished, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the, the word substance is literally the word body, those things were a shadow, the body belongs to Christ. It was like those things were the shadow of Christ cast across the Old Testament, and now that the body is here, you don't want the shadow anymore. Now, the way those who believe in a Christian Sabbath will respond to this passage is they'll say, well, these are not the weekly Sabbaths, these are the special Sabbaths, you know, the high Sabbaths, when, when there was a Sabbath connected with one of the big festivals. Well, first of all, there's nothing in the text to indicate that. But, and, and I used to struggle with this because it is, it is odd to me that this was one of the Ten Commandments. If it's one of those Ten Moral Commandments, how could it go away? Well, the answer is this. When you look at how the Old Testament uses those three expressions that are here in Colossians 3.16, festival, new moon, Sabbath day. When those three expressions occur together in the Old Testament, always, always, without exception, it's referring to the annual feasts of Israel, the monthly new moon celebrations, and the normal weekly Sabbaths, without exception. And so here, Paul uses that same expression, and he says, no one then is to judge you in respect to your keeping the annual feasts, the monthly new moon celebrations, or the normal weekly Sabbaths. They were a mere shadow, and the body is Christ. That means that we are not required to celebrate a Christian Sabbath. The regulations of the Sabbath are not in place for us. It becomes then an issue of conscience as to how you practice Sunday. What is clear, and this I wanna make very clear, is the day doesn't belong to you. 
It was intended from the beginning that our time was God's. Six days we were to work, and there was to be time set apart from the normal life to worship with God's people. Folks, that hasn't changed. It's the regulations and all of the thou shalt not do this and thou shalt do this that has changed. But the reality of worship with God's people hasn't changed. You remember what the writer of Hebrews says? Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the manner of some. We are required together with God's people for worship. What you do with the rest of Sunday is an issue of conscience between you and God. All right, let's move on quickly. One other thing, two other things. We also learn from this that Jesus is equal to God because to claim to be the kurios of the Sabbath was an unmistakable claim to deity. If you go back to when this command was uttered, it was uttered from God's mouth himself. You remember in Exodus 20, God speaks from this flaming cloud-covered, earthquake-stricken mountain, and the people hear the voice of God, and God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, and he sounded nothing like Charlton Heston. All right? And they heard it. It was the voice of God, according to Deuteronomy chapter 5, that they heard issue this command. To claim then to be the Lord of the Sabbath was an audacious claim if Jesus was not who he claimed to be. Lord is the Son of Man, even of Shabbat. It was an audacious claim to be equal to God himself. The final lesson I want you to see is a beautiful one for us as Christians. The real significance of the Sabbath for us is that the Sabbath was a perfect picture of the spiritual rest our souls have found in Christ. Look at Hebrews chapter 4. The writer of Hebrews uses the Sabbath as an illustration of what has happened to us. Look at Hebrews chapter 4 verse 1. Therefore let us fear if while a promise remains of entering God's rest, any one of you may seem to come short of it. For indeed, we've had the good news preached to us, just as they, that is the children of Israel in the, in the wilderness, had also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed, here it is, we who have believed in Christ enter that rest just as he said. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now skip down to verse 8. If Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. In other words, that wasn't the real rest they needed. Verse 9, so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Here's the real significance of the Sabbath. Verse 10, for the one who by faith has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. What's the writer of Hebrews saying? He's saying this. There was this wonderful promise of rest from your labors. And he says, let me tell you something. There's a spiritual aspect to that. It wasn't just about not doing your daily occupation. It was about the fact that you would enter a place where you were no longer working to secure the favor of God. 
Instead, you were entering the Sabbath rest where you stopped working to satisfy the demands of God and Christ himself did it in our place. He became our Sabbath rest. And because he worked and because he did everything God required and because he satisfied the justice and wrath of God, you and I can enter the Sabbath rest where our souls no longer labor to satisfy the just demands of God, but instead we rest from all our work because Christ did it for us. That's our Sabbath. We rest in Christ. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part two of The Sabbath and the Heart of God. Join us next time for part three. We look forward to seeing you then. And friend, join Tom Pennington in Southlake, Texas, February 18th through the 20th for the 2022 Countryside Bible Church Conference, Our Glorious Hope. Tom welcomes Steve Lawson, H.B. Charles, Philip DeCourcy, and more to remind you of the eternal hope of heaven that is ours in Christ and to spur you on to live in light of that reality today. Visit thewordunleashed.org for more information and registration links to the conference. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.